This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay, good morning, um, Dr. Jones, Dr. Bach. Um, as a counseling student, I realized that the, the counselor now is being called a multicultural counselor in terms of competencies, is being called to social, to be able to be a social advocate for all cultures and subcultures. And I was wondering how that might conflict. Um, if, you, if you do have a position as a, culture, as a counselor, how that might conflict um, with, in the counseling session with clients who might be um, of that particular orientation. Um, if you have to say, well, you represent, as you were articulating, the fact that you have a, an identity um, in this age of sound bites and sensational journalism, people tend to just snatch what they want to have. How might that affect your clients or how, the relationship with the counselor and the client? Boy, is that a, an important and huge question. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of glad you asked it. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, I was reminded of this yesterday that I was driving down and reading uh, the state of California just passed the law. It's, I believe it's awaiting Governor Brown's signature. But the state of California legislatures, the Senate and House, just passed a law making it a point of, crim of criminal fines, criminal censure, if a person offers any kind of reorientation therapy to a, an individual under 18 years of age. And we are living at a time where um, I know that I've stuck my head up, and I, I'm a bit of a pariah in my professional organization, the American Psychological Association. I've been an officer in that association. I was on the Council of Representatives of that organization. Uh, but it's a very difficult place to be. I think people who are in the mental health professions are among uh, the, the people who are on the, on the front, front lines, because we're being pushed to say that which we uh, really which really conflicts with our deepest moral convictions. Um, it is, it's interesting, up to this point, the, the various professional associations, the psycholog American Psychological, American Psychiatric, Marriage and Family, Counselors Association, and so forth, have slightly different nuances to the way that they spin their ethical statements and their, pro their professional statements. Uh, and I'm most familiar with my own. Interestingly, to this point, the American Psychological Association has not quite turned the corner of, of branding as unprofessional and unethical people who hold views such as the views that I, that I hold. But they're dangerously close, dangerous from my perspective, mm -hmm. <laughs> dangerously close to doing precisely that. And I'm trying to push back within the professional organization by talking about the, the, the need for academic freedom, for intellectual integrity, to, that we're not sort of cookie-cutter approaches to each other. And uh, it's interesting to see uh, how these things happen. I mentioned in my talk uh, the controversy that's currently exploding at the University of Texas. And I don't know if, those, if anybody here is, is interested in this controversy. There's, a, uh, there's a, a sociologist on their faculty, Mark Regneris, who is a Christian. He's a graduate of Calvin College. He's a, he's a convert to Roman Catholicism. He, and he's a, quite, a, quite an accomplished marriage, uh, quite an accomplished sociologist. And he got funding from a conservative think, several conservative think tanks to do a study. There's this prevailing question, what is the impact of same-sex parents on children? And what you're hearing from, from the uh, from the secular community is there's no difference. It has no, no d detrimental impact. Uh, I've reviewed some of that research on my own and have written about it, and what's, what's appalling is the quality of the studies that are being cited. And basically, people are way out beyond what the science legitimately says because most of these studies are built around convenience samples that aren't representative of the gay and lesbian community itself. So how can you make a judgment about gay and lesbian parenting when you don't know what what, uh, the, what, what would be a representative sample of that group, and you don't have a study that represents. 
So Regnerus, intrigued, intrigued with this idea, went out and got the closest to a representative sample that has been assembled to this day. Uh, he used a, a, a public, a public sam opinion sampling corporation called KnowledgeWorks. They sampled tens of thousands of people in order to get a subpopulation of about 200 individuals who had some experience of their parents, uh, one parent or the other, uh, coming out as same sex sometime during their childhood. And he basically compared what are the life outcomes for these individuals who had some type of same-sex parenting in their background versus the, the people who came from intact two-parent biological families. And on, on the m vast majority of the, of the variables that he sampled, uh, the, the, ch the people who were children from the gay and lesbian families had worse outcomes on uh, everything from mental health outcomes to imprisonment to being on welfare to educational attainment to job stability and so forth and so on. Regnerus himself was very, very careful to say, this does not mean that all gay and lesbian parenting is bad. Because this sam this is, this is, these are not studies of people who grew up in intact, committed, stable homosexual families. This is just where there was some, in a sense, passing glance. But he said, it does give you pause, and it points out how little we know about the impact of gay and lesbian parenting. Well. Regnerus has has been viciously attacked, and uh, there's a, a, a he's being in a sense tried for scientific malpractice at University of Texas and in his professional organizations. And the journal that published the study, the, the Social Science Research Journal, uh, the editor there is just is just going through a horrible time of, of calls for his for his denunciation and for his resignation as the editor of the journal. And so there's this tremendous sort of uh, professional. Uh, backlash against any expression of conservative opinions. Um, for you as a pr professional who's going to, pre -pre you're going out into that professional world, you're going to have to find, I think the first thing is to become competent in what your profession actually says. You know, really know your P's and Q's about, about what your ethics statements say and find that way to express your views within the context of um, of these prof this professional matrix. But there can come a point where you really are faced with a fundamental choice. Am I, going to am I going to stand by what God's Word teaches or am I going to yield my, this aspect of my core identity? And I, that's where I think Christians have to serve Christ and not Caesar. Uh, but to do so with grace, and I, I, I'm hoping the day won't come where I have to resign or I'm thrown out at the American Psychological Association. Um, I should mention that we, we need, in the process, we not, in, not only need to know with rigor what our professional identity is about and what the professional standards say, but we also know with, need to know with identity and rigor what Christian belief demands of me. And so we need to get away from some of the simplistic, you know, so for instance, does the American Psychiatric Association voted in the 1970s to eliminate homosexuality as a mental illness. Do Christians have a dog in that fight? Does the scripture say homosexuality is a mental illness? Well, actually, the definition of what is and is not a mental illness is extraordinarily conceptually complex. And uh, I, I, I'm convinced that, that it's, it's, in a sense, a matter of neutrality. It may not. It may, it may be from a Christian perspective. Um, how does change happen? I think that change is a very complex phenomenon. Uh, there's a whole host of issues. We need to be very rigorous in examining what does, what does Christian faith call me to say. Um, let me just, one final thought. Um, one of the best documents you can read is the 2009 study of the task force of the American Psychological Association on sexual orientation change efforts. Um, you can go, go to the APA website, apa.org, find their, find their sheet of uh, gay and lesbian resources, and you'll find this 90-page or I think maybe 120-page study. But buried in the middle of that study is, is one of the most amazing admissions by a secular mental health group that I've ever read. And that is they, they sort of, after, after really kind of demolishing the case for change, or they try to demolish the case for, that change is possible, they actually come out and say, we do have to admit that there's a fundamental conflict between a psychological worldview and a religious worldview. And they, they encapsulate the psychological worldview by what they, call a, what they call organismic congruence, which is this clumsy term. <laughs> but what they're signaling is that, that my ultimate calling from a psychological perspective is to be myself. It's congruence with my own organismic experience 
so, so internal inconsistency. And they say this, this seems to be in inherent conflict with certain religious teachings which call for what, what they call telic congruence, from the Greek word telos, the goal that lies outside of oneself. And so they say, you know, these religions basically say organismic congruence is not the way to go. What you ought to be, able, what you ought to be pursuing is God transforming you into that ideal. And they, they sort of grudgingly say, sometimes the, the religious and the psychological really do come to blows. And I think they're absolutely right about that. And uh, so uh, I think something like that can help us uh, to, uh, to know how to articulate our own views as Christians um, in, on these matters. Sorry for the long answer. A great question. Good morning. Um, I have two questions wrapped up into one. The first is, how would one go about getting involved in um, reaching out to the GLBT community in loving and, and uh, appropriate ways? And then second to that, how would you go about, I don't know, more educating your church and the body of believers and, and just stepping into this fight? Where, where's a good start point to begin with this? That's great. Two, two great questions. I just have to confess to be the wrong person to answer the first one. Um, my engagement is largely the intellectual, the, the scientific, the conceptual, and I, I do a lot of writing, and that puts me in conversation with other scholars who we argue back and forth by email and so forth. But I have, I have had um, not as much opportunity to be an exemplar of the kind of outreach that, I, that I've mentioned. I do have this, uh, I have a number of friends who are gay and lesbian, but I particularly have this one friend that I've walked alongside of for really 25 years now whose who's, uh, journey is a very lonely one because very few people, he's, he's had some terrible experiences within the church. And, uh, but I, I would say uh, in today's world, you're, you're more likely than not to have opportunities fall into your lap. And if you simply pursue relationships, pursue caring relationships, just express interest in the people that are around you, that opportunities will come up. But there probably are other ministry leaders on this campus and other places, that churches, that could, uh, that could exemplify that. You can ask in this community, are there churches that have extraordinary um, forms of outreach and visibility in the gay and lesbian community and, and to go and study how they get engaged in that? Um, uh, what was your second question? Sorry. Educating the church. Oh, educating the church. Um, I think that uh, the, I think people are actually anxious to talk about this question. And let me return to this issue about the, the reluctance of church leaders to take it up. This is, I, I see this time and time again. On issues of sexuality, people can become quickly polarized, and sometimes pastors and church leaders get stuck in a, uh, in a, in a sense, in a position of weakness, of not wanting to stir up controversy within the church. This is an area where we have to realize that, that Christian integrity demands that we take on these issues. And so, um, you, you know, I would urge you to read everything that I put in that handout <laughs> for you and, uh, and then just dive in. Uh, find a group of Christian leaders that are willing to take this on. It, it's amazing. You put sexuality on the discussion table and people turn up in droves to, to have the conversation. So, um, I would also uh, say that, um, that that you can structure part of your conversation around the teachable moments of, of, of life that presents itself before you. So um, whether it's political issues or the, the tangible issues that are happening in the community, that there are opportunities that, uh, for conversation that come up just right before us. Thank you. Thank you. You said under your first point when you were making your presentation to not start or end the conversation with moral judgment. And I'd like to ask what you mean by that. Have you mentioned that a little bit more? And in particular, how do we practically not start with moral judgment when treating a person with respect as an individual would mean being honest yeah. so I can develop a real relationship? Okay, that's a great question. Um, and I'm, I was at that point speaking in a sense in, in vague ambiguities and it's, it, it, it can be a delicate thing to, to cash that out. Um, I would say, first of all, um, if, you, if you feel like, let me, let me pick up the last part of your question. In a sense, if, I'm, if, if real relationship means that I'm honest, how can, I, how can this not be part of the conversation? I guess my, my, my response back would be 
that honesty, honesty is necessary, but honesty by itself doesn't sort out what takes priority in your engagement with a person. So the honest truth is, you know, you might, you might, you, you, know, you see that this person is gay and you have an honest opinion about that, but you also see that they're Hispanic and that they're a welder and that they're this and they're that and that they're profane and that they're, um, have this characteristic and that characteristic. I mean, so why do we pick out the one, one thing that's likely in the name of honesty, the one thing that's likely to create a barrier for us forming a relationship. So honesty doesn't say, I must focus on this issue. It says that honest, it would be dishonest for me to pretend that it's not there. So there's a time and a place to address it, but it may not be on that first, on that first point. And so in honesty, is it possible to engage the person around, uh, I, I think for instance of my, my daughter who works in the culinary world. Uh, she's around people who are obviously gay and lesbian, but she can also approach them on, on, on the integrity of their, of their work as a, as a chef. She can talk about their, their kindness to the people that are around them. Those are just as honest as co a confrontation about the moral issues, but they form a better bridge to, to contextualize that engagement around the moral issues. And to, to come at the other end, there can be a time about judgment. There was a wonderful question down front that we were having a, a brief discussion about, uh, you know, it, what about what about the fact that there's there seems to be times when you must exercise church discipline? Doesn't doesn't the church discipline? Doesn't the moral standards of the church eventually impose some standard? And I think the answer to that is in in some instances it does. The the moral issues are absolutely fundamental. There's times to say. You are, you are teaching falsehood in our church. You are presenting that as being gospel truth, which is not gospel truth. We cannot endorse that. We cannot enable that. And therefore, we have to ask you to not speak out the way you are or whatever. Um, but even there, I think the last word is not judgment. Um, when, in, to my mind, when, when the Apostle Paul, going back to that 1 Corinthians 6 passage, when the Apostle Paul says, here's various kinds of immorality, these, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. It strikes me that his purpose in that exhortation is not to condemn and release, but it's to offer hope. Because what does he do? He immediately says, and such were some of you. So even when you have to exercise church discipline, you still have the opportunity to say to the person, even in, in voicing church discipline, you still have the opportunity to say, but God still loves you and will never let you go unless you refuse to embrace him all the way to the end. Um, I've really taken a model from the fact, uh, you know, I, I work at Wheaton College and we, we're shepherding this group of 2,400 undergrads, and I really have the highest respect for how our student development people deal with disciplinary issues. We suspend people, at Wheaton. we discipline them, we sometimes come to the point of suspending them, we sometimes come to the point of expulsion. That is an act of judgment. But our student development people, as, a, as, a, as an exercise of Christian discipline, as they're ex suspending, as they're expelling someone, say, the, the last thing they say to them is not, you are a bad person, we cast you out from among us. The last thing they say to this, that person is, please come back. Please repent. Please come back to Christ. Please embrace Christ's love. We would love to welcome you to this community. Nobody is irredeemable. God will never let you go. And... Uh, we're amazed at the number of people who come back six months, one year, three years later and say, you know, I really have found my, my way back to faith. You're, and your discipline was a part of that. So that to me is an example of how you, judgment is sometimes necessary, but it's not either the first or last word. Thank you for a great question. All right. Um, back on one of my professors, he had this saying. He said that what was once unthinkable becomes debatable, becomes accepted. Um, this, he was, was in a ethics class, and he was talking about the homosexual movement, how one time it was unthinkable, but then became debated in the 70s and 80s, and now it's really widely accepted. The question I have asked is, what's next? Like, in the civil rights movement, like, where is this gonna lead our culture to, in a sense? Like, do you have any ideas at all, or? I'm neither the, a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, there's some things that are taking shape that are really, uh, really quite amazing, I think. In the circles in which I run, the success and full acceptance of the of homosexual identity and, uh, and uh, of homosexual identity is almost a given now. The big press is no longer on homosexuality because they've, in a sense, declared victory on that. 
The big press now is on transsexuality and transgendered issues. In the podcast that we did this morning, Michael Brown, who's in Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina, what could be a quainter, more traditional uh, Southern Christian town, right? Michael Brown mentioned that there's a school in Charlotte, or maybe it's the whole school system, where the teacher can no longer say to a class, good morning, boys and girls. Because to say good morning, boys and girls, is to impose an imperial gender classification that may violate the rights of people to declare themselves to be neither boy nor girl, or both, or to be something other. And so I think we're living in a time where the press outside of the boundaries on sexual orientation, which is really focused on sexual partnership, is really being broadened to even deeper kinds of, of identity. And I see this, um, I mean, the church has always been living in Romans 1 times. But in some ways, this seems more Romans 1 than, than any time that I can remember, where the press is, I will not be tyrannized by a God who imposes definition and limits on me. Even in something as indisputable as sexuality, the, you know, when, you, when, you, when a baby pops out, you know it's a boy or a girl. Yes, there are these rare once in 10,000 biological confused conditions and, and so forth and so on. But generally speaking, you say it's a boy, it's a girl. When we get to the point in our culture where we can't even celebrate boyness and girlness, we've, we've passed on a, a sort of a, a fundamental point. So, um, you know, we, we, first it was LGB, lesbian, gay, and bisexual, then it was LGBT to add transsexual, then it's LBGTQ to add questioning or queer, or there's actually four or five different things that qualify as Qs. I've seen one composition of, the, of, that, of that acronym that goes out 14 letters of the people who want to be, uh, to be categorized as just as legitimate as everybody else. And the, the underlying theme that unites the whole thing is this sense, I think, of it, it's, it's Genesis 1, not just Romans 1. It is, it is I, or Genesis 2, I should, 2 and 3, I should say. It's, it's I will not have God exercise dominion over me. I will not accept the creational givens of my existence. I will not accept finiteness. I must be the master of my own soul. And that includes pushing back even on biological identity uh, of, sex, of male or female in order to establish my human autonomy. So I think those are the issues. It's an irony that um, in Romans 1, where we talk about the exchanging of the role of the creator for the creature right. as being the distortion that that's actually what you're seeing in this kind that's, of an, an exchange. That's right. Yes. Um, I, it, it's a great question to think about where things are headed, and uh, I, I think it's a difficult... Let me, I want to raise this because I think it's important. I think that sometimes when this question is raised, people say, well, here's the list of things that are coming down the pike. And you can go polygamy, pedophilia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You sometimes see that argument raised. And the initial reaction is, well, that's really harsh. Don't blame person A for situation B. But one of the hard things about that is, is that as we've watched this unfold and, and we watch it happen, that, in fact, is the movement of what happens, is that something else comes next. Now that we've got this one so-called taken care of, we'll move on to the next category that we want to play with. So I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's a nature of, uh, of thinking through what it is to live in a fallen world. Yeah. Um, the, the point that was made, very, being a chapel message about brokenness, that we live in a context of brokenness, and that brokenness happens all over the place. It happens in homosexual relationships, it happens within families, it happens in heterosexual relationships, it, it runs across the board. And one of the ways to connect in this conversation, we really stress this in the podcast, it hasn't come out so much now, but one of the ways to connect is to make the point that the struggle that you have in area X is like the struggle I have in area Y. Mm -hmm. And there's a way in which you say what Christ redeems is both X and Y. And he is working with me in area Y while he's working with you in area X. And to have some sense of how, uh, of how, how Christ, the encounter with Christ, transcends and steps into all those areas. God as the creator has the right to step into all those areas. 
and, and calls us to think about how we relate in those areas. It's a great question. Can I just add one more historical yeah. note? I, I think it's helpful to frame this, that this is not the first time that the church is facing this kind of thing. In a sense, our situation today was set up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s with two really fundamental shifts in our cultural view. One was the sexual revolution, and the, with the introduction of contraception, there was a time when sex was so intimately seen as, as being embedded with reproduction. And so sex was, was a family act, you know, it, it had consequences. And it, the introduction of contraceptions has really fundamentally changed the view of, our, of, our, of sexual action in our culture today, where it's really viewed as an expression of fun. It's viewed as, as self-expression. And reproduction is not even in the view. And, and hence we have the complete dismissal of, of, uh, of issues of reproductive consequences of our behavior and so forth and so on. This is, one of the things we need to do in our, in our culture is, is to, to go back to a holistic view about sex. Sex is, thank, praise be to God, sex is fun, but it's not just fun. It, it's, it's a uniting human act that has reproductive consequences sometimes or can be under God's grace. And so we need to expand that view. The other thing that, that happened in our, in our culture, which I think we insufficiently appreciate and that you will face as church leaders, is a fundamental shift in our view of marriage where marriage was once a covenant and it was once a, a, a reality of the uniting into one flesh of two human beings. I firmly believe that my, my wife and I are one person. We are, we're in some mystical way, we are united into one flesh in Christ. There's a unity that transcends everything else. That, that view has eroded so substantially in our culture and it's deeply, deeply rooted to, in our culture to view marriage as a contract that exists for my individual good. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why we move towards no-fault divorce is the fundamental sense that if my marriage is not giving me what I want, I should be able to bail. But in Christian perspective, I believe marriage is meant to be a lifelong relationship that grounds the person and forms a context for God's sanctifying work in life through this creation of union. So when Brent and I have sparks that fly between the two of us, when we have tough issues to work out, it's, the question is not, am I getting what I want? The question is, what does God want to do in me and what does God want to do in her and in our children and in those whose lives we touch as a result of this engagement with each other? So there's these deep fundamental issues that I think church leaders have to pay attention to. We have to fight to reorient the fundamental views of the people that are sitting in our, in our, in our churches if we're ever going to have a hope of them being the whole Christian people that they need to be. You know, one of the reasons we chose to talk about this in the context of sexuality, and we'll be talking about it in the context of sexuality, is because um, the way in which sexuality is defined in our culture, I'm piggybacking off the point that you're making, is to make it an, an experience of some kind or another, and, and it can be fleeting or it can be long-term, that's left up to me. But one of the things that Scripture says when Scripture is rebuking the uh, union of a person with a prostitute, even if it's in the context of temple prostitution, which might be the case in the passage in question in 1 Corinthians, is the point that there is a union that takes place. This isn't just an experience. There is a real bonding. There is, there is something soulish about sexuality, if I can say it that way. Mm -hmm. and, and if there's something soulish about sexuality, it isn't casual. And, and, and I think we're back to this issue of getting back to defining what it is something is designed to be versus the way our culture is portraying it to be and the, really the difference between uh, those two things. Okay, over here. In talking with some about homosexuality, uh, one of their strategies in talking or engaging the community is to shift the focus from um, the homosexual identity to the um, propensity towards same-sex attraction, that they are predisposed to have same-sex attraction as some are to, I don't know, overeating or addiction or something like that. Do you find that that's a helpful strategy to use or does that do more harm than good? That's a great question. Um, you know, when, when Christians try to re reorient the conversation by saying, well, I'm not going to use the word sick, uh, homosexual for you. I I'm going to just talk about your same-sex attractions. And there's a sense in which some, some members of the gay community are sort of on to that strategy and say, you know, their immediate response is, don't trivialize me by, by, by just saying those are just the attractions I feel. This is who I am. I think that the, 
the labels that, I think we need to be aware of the labels that we use, but um, I, I would not let a label stand in the way of building the relationship. I would just say keep, keep your feet under you, know where you're headed in the relationship, but if, if, if you using that one term is going to build a barrier in that relationship, then I would say, you know, don't use that term. Keep up the relationship. But if, but if the trajectory of the relationship is one, is one of, I am going to push you in my, into my mold, at some point you have to say, I, I can't, I, I'm, I'm in the mold that God has put me in. I'm expressing what I believe to be Christian truth, and, and I, I want, if you say what you want is a real relationship, then I am here, and, uh, but, but who I am is, is transparently expressed in, in and through the Christian truth that I embrace, so I think you have to, have to keep that foremost. So thank you. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Thank you. I thank Wheaton for its moral stand on postcoital contraception. Uh, ten years ago, when I was lost, uh, I was the chief pharmacist for a government facility, and when I came to Christ, that was the first conviction uh, that mm-hmm. I experienced. Uh, uh, and because of that, I'm no longer a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. I would uh, suggest, as I came here, I was required to have insurance, uh, the Christian ministry cost-sharing uh, as a possible alternative. Yes. Uh, what I found out was not only does the Lord possess my soul and my body, but He also possessed my job and and everything else. Yes. So, uh, as a chaplain, I have opportunity to kind of meet people out in the field where they're at, and uh, a strategy is to meet them where they're at and bring them uh, into uh, the truth. And uh, I, I appreciated that you, if I believe to not misquote you, but you said you don't draw a hard line or, or put a, a barrier up. Uh, other than uh, prayer and your testimony, uh, and, and you use the word, thank you so much, because then the dialogue really is, doesn't, it's not between me and, and the lost, but it's between them and bringing them into God's word to Christ. Anything else along that, uh, engaging them to bring them down into the word or, or into Christ? Yeah, I really uh, appreciate your your witness of integrity in the choices you've made in your career. And um, um, but uh, you know, apart from the general things I've shared before, I don't th- I don't think that I have that that much more to offer. Uh, um, I I think that each of us are going to have to find that individual path with the calling of the relationships that God puts us in, puts in front of us, and uh, and seek in in love to be the witness that we that we can be. So um, I'm. Beyond, beyond the things I've, few things I've said so far, I, I'm not sure I have too much to add on that, so but thank you. Yeah, this may relate both to Dr. Bach's X and Y illustration and also the, the moral aspect, Dr. Jones. Um, I'd like to focus the, my question more toward um, those who are uh, uh, Christian and claim to be homosexual and uh, in my conversation with my neighbor who for 32 years was married to his wife but divorced her because he felt he had to be true to his way and his, my other neighbor who has his son just adopted in a gay uh, uh, relationship in, in conversing with him and kind of what you were saying Dr. Bach you know my because I asked him I said well why would my adultery be any different than your homosexuality? We need to live holy lives for the Lord. He says, well, you've got to realize my homosexuality isn't sin. 
your adultery is, but my homosexuality is a <laughs> sin. It's just, you know, um, it was temple homosexuality that was condemned, and the six verses in the Bible that talk about homosexuality don't relate to that. So really, don't, don't talk to me about my actions yes. as sin. Yours are, but, but mine aren't. Yes. How would you begin addressing uh, Christians who... Yeah. Who I believe he he's a Christian and he you know, he's confessed Christ and has lived you know for twenty years across the road, but yeah. he he says I don't know what you're talking about because my homosexuality isn't sin. The, the problem that you have here, and this is something that's happening in the literature. I'm assuming this is a this is actually in some ways a New Testament question and, a, and an Old Testament question. Um, problem that you have here is that in the conversation about the Bible and homosexuality, these texts have been read in very narrow ways to exclude what some in the gay community will call genuine monogamous homosexual relationships. So, so, so they'll acknowledge if I have multiple problem, uh, partners, that may be a problem, okay? But we're talking about monogamous homosexual relationships that don't apply. And to get there, many of the texts have been have been reread or redefined or narrowed in terms of what they are talking about. Some of the texts that, that do address this area do address issues related to temple prostitution and practices associated with the temple. But the categories that you're dealing with, generally speaking, I think are broader than this, and the category is broad itself. Um, but there is a whole literature out there, and one of the things that's happened in the, in the mainline churches is, is that this literature about these texts have, I'm going to put in quotes, convinced um, the denominations that these texts are more narrow versus broad, and therefore there's an acceptability of, of these categories. My own, my own take, and one of the things that actually we're going to do when we deal with this section later on and we do a podcast, I'm actually going to do a podcast on these passages. We're going to talk about how these passages are handled, what the Bible is doing with them. Because you're right. If someone says, well, I don't think it's a sin, so it's so the analogy doesn't work, in their minds, you have made a, a connection that doesn't exist. But in fact, if the Bible is making that connection, then the analogy does exist. Now, the second fact is, and Stan can speak to this for sure, the second fact is, is that in most homosexual Situations you aren't dealing with a monogamous homosexual relationship. Um, the the nature of the community is there's a huge turnover. Safe and aside, also true in the heterosexual community too. <laughs> so um, uh, right. so so the point here is is that is that even as someone tries to escape, if you will, the accountability that the Bible is putting on them, in most cases, in fact, in the reality, it often doesn't apply. That's right. That's right. And I, I would probably just add two things to what Daryl said. I mean, I'm really grateful to hear that they're going to treat the text in greater length. But there, there's, there's, a, there's a deep presupposition that's often part of the hermeneutic that, uh, that it is behind the, that, those kind of narrow interpretations of the text. And that is the, the presumption that the ancient world is fundamentally different than the world today. We're really in a new era. Well, the, I've, I've, I've swum in this, in this stream long enough to see a very radical change in the broader scale of scholarship. The more we learn about the ancient world, in, about these matters, the more the ancient world looks just like today. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of texts and artifacts that they've encountered where, that suggest the, that there was wide awareness of homosexual behavior patterns, homosexual inclinations, and so forth and so on in the ancient world, makes it much more likely that rather than being ignorant and focusing on an aberrant case that the Apostle Paul and the Old Testament writers knew exactly what they were talking about and that it was not that different than the current world. And the other thing that I would just mention is that, you know, I, I still encounter people regularly who make that exactly that kind of argument. But what I oftentimes say back to them is, is do you realize how that argument is now passe in the liberal Christian community? Uh, it's, it's, it's been interesting to see some of the best liberal scholars come around and saying, you know what, we really just can't bend the text that way. There's a wonderful article by Luke Timothy Johnson, a mainstream uh, New Testament scholar um, on the faculty at Emory University. He wrote in Commonweal about three, three years ago, he said, look, I'm sick of the gymnastics and the spinning to try to get the text say say what it doesn't say. We know what the text says. In other words, the text 
condemns all instances of homosexual behavior. That's, and he says, he says, the only answer is to say, on this, like on other issues, the text is simply wrong. Now, I say to my, when I get a chance to lecture on this in students, I, I, to students at Wheaton College, I say to them, now that is a position that has intellectual integrity because it puts the issue right there. Is the Bible authoritative or not? Do we have the authority to say the Bible is right on these issues and wrong on those? That is a position that has integrity. I, as an evangelical, don't believe I have that, that, that capacity. I can't pass judgment on Scripture. Scripture passes judgment on me. So that's the, final, that's the fundamental question. But, you know, there aren't many really good scholars anymore who try to make that, that argument. You know, one of the things that happens in this discussion is, is the combination of the two things that you mentioned. We know better today, and thus we know that the people who were writing those ancient texts back in those ancient times didn't really know what they were saying. Right. And, that, and you get the combination of the two put side by side as a, another way of, of negating uh, the discussion. So uh, this, uh, to be, it actually is important for people in the church to be aware of how these texts are being read, what's being said about them, that kind of thing. And so that's why we will dedicate, uh, as I said, we're going to dedicate some time and effort to working through these texts in detail, presenting both what the rationale is for the argument that says that these texts are narrow, as well as dealing with the response to how uh, those texts um, are read in a, in a broader way in the way they've traditionally been read. Over here. Uh, Dr. Jones, if you were a, a journal reader, what would, uh, what would be some sources uh, that you'd recommend in different disciplines to see what the, uh, the professional and the academic research community is saying on the issue? So what would be some journals that you would keep up with to see what they have to say? Goodness. Um... You've stumped me. <laughs> Part of the reason you've stumped me is, is that it, it, the, the spectrum of journals where these kinds of issues are, are studied and, and talked about is just stunningly broad. Um, there's a sense in which uh, gay affirming scholarship is the sort of the, the, the lingua franca of today and, um, and so it, it's just published so widely. Um, it's really quite remarkable. Um, you can you can almost just throw a rock at random, and you'll you'll hit hit a place. So, um, I would I would su suggest that um, um, if you want to if you want to track sort of the current trends of scholarship. Um, Almost all of the major professional organizations, the American Psychological Association, American Anthropological Association, American Sociological, all of them have websites and have resources for gays and lesbians as a major theme on there. If you want to sort of read the, the latest cutting edge, I would suggest going, going to those, res, those resources and, and locating them. There, the, I mentioned earlier the Mark Regneris controversy. If you want to get a sense of what that controversy is about, um, the, the journal where that was published was Social Science Review, and I just just got to read pre-publication. Uh, I think they're going to go live in a in a, six, uh, a month or six weeks, but I just got to read some several reviews of uh, of responses about how this is how this controversy has spun out, and uh, you might want to look for the next issue. It gives a fascinating depiction of just how tough the battles are in this area. It's I should just mention by the way that. Um, that um, it is uh, it is brutally hard to get anything published that, that comes that t comes in any way from a conservative perspective in this area. Um, I there there have actually been empirical studies of how empirical studies get published, and when studies go against the prevailing winds of professional opinion at the time, it's uh, very difficult to get things published. And so the the. I think one problem is that there aren't that many conservative scholars doing really, really good work out there. But when they do, they get, they get punished, they get, uh, they get slanted into second and third tier journals, and uh, it's, it's really, uh, the, the science is a great blessing. Self science is a self-correcting enterprise in, when it's operating properly, but it is not always operating properly, and, and it, it's, there's a sense in which it's operating in a halting and difficult way right now. Let me, let me ask a, very, uh, a variation of the question that was asked. If there were one or two books that you should say a Christian leader should read to get themselves oriented to this topic. Do you have one or two that you would put forward? I mean, I know you gave a, a list then there, almost a dozen, but yeah. do you, is there, uh, there one or two places where you would start? I would probably start with uh, 
uh, Mark Yarhouse's book uh, that was just published last year that's on that list. Um, um, it's a sort of Christi uh, the church and homosexuality. Mark is an absolutely superb scholar, and uh, I, I say that with a note of pride because he was my student. Uh, and one of the great blessings that you can have as a professor sometimes is seeing your students go on and do you know greater things than you ever than you ever dreamed of, and then you ever dreamed that they would have. And Mark, Mark is blessed with an excellent background in philosophy at an undergrad in Calvin College, and then uh, did his doctoral studies at Wheaton, and uh, has just gone on to do amazing things. So his book is is really terrific. And in terms of getting an inside glimpse of what life is like for a true, faithful, gay Christian, I would read the book by Wesley Hill that's on that list called Washed and Waiting. I was just stunned when that book came out. Wesley is completing a PhD in New Testament at Duke University. He's someone who, at age 17 or 18, came to grips with his stable same-sex attraction. And that book is the most compelling portrait of somebody. It, it's, it's a portrait of a young man who desperately wanted to read the Bible and find in it an affirmation for homosexual relationships, because that's what he wanted. And he immersed himself with integrity and said, you know, in integrity, I can't read the Bible that way. And so my question is, um, am I going to be faithful to my desires or faithful to how I think God is calling me? And it's just a, a beautiful portrait, and an in-depth portrait that gives an, a, a deep personal uh, example of what it's like to walk through these things in the best possible way. So just, it, just to illustrate how real this situation is, although I probably don't need to say this, but I'm involved right now in a church that's dealing with a missionary who's come back off the field because they have confessed to a homosexual relationship and the church community is trying to deal with how to deal with the situation with this person. Uh, and, and so, uh, and the book that was recommended to us as elders to help, help us deal with this situation uh, is the book by Mark Yarhouse. Okay. So, Good. Uh, yes, Chaplain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming and being with us on this occasion today. Um, before coming here to be the chaplain, I was a pastor for 23 years. And over the course of those years, um, had the opportunity to work with about 10 homosexuals who came to me and uh, were concerned about their issues and wanted help. And um, I, I must say that, that my experience, this is personal, has been that I have never seen one who did not completely relapse and go back into the homosexual world. I've never seen anyone, quote, cured. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a change of identity. Mm. And that leads me to this question. Is our best hope as counselors and pastors, is our best hope change and control of behavior or change of identity? That's great. Great question. Um, the, uh, how, how best to, to answer what I, what I say when someone is sitting before me and says, what do I aspire to? My response typically, or, or the, that I've come to over time, is to say, I urge you to, to just take the next step on the journey. God promises to be a lamp unto your feet. And, and, and I've thought a lot about that image. The image is not God as the searchlight that lays out the path that lies for miles and miles ahead of you so that you can see every step that's coming, but God is going to show you where to put the next foot down, a lamp unto your feet. Mm -hmm. And so I try to say, you know, prepare yourself for a journey of uncertain outcomes. Uh, prepare yourself for a journey that God would, would minimally call you to chastity. Um, I, I, believe, I believe it is not within every person's power to switch from homosexual orientation to heterosexual power, <laughs> homosexual, heterosexual orientation. But I do believe God gives us the capacity to control our behavior. We are not, uh, we're not robots, we're not animals that, that, are, that cannot control our passions. So the capacity to have a, a morally accountable relationship with God where we can control our behavior is there. <laughs> Even that is a hard way. And the, the deeper, more deeply immersed the person has been, in the sort of 
crazy promiscuity of some parts of the, of the, the male gay world and so forth, the, the more difficult this is going to be. We say the, see the exact same phenomenon with people struggling with heterosexual pornography. The, the rampant addiction to pornography in our, among our young people, among pastors and so forth, and Christian men, is really a scandal for the church. And it's, it's, we have to realize the, the long-term impact of the choices we make now to set up a moral trajectory. There's a sense in which a person makes themselves more and more vulnerable to future relapse by the choices they make now. So, but I still think that, that nevertheless, that, that a call to chase singleness is, is there and possible. And yes, people may have relapses, but every sinner has relapses. Yes, and at every, every At every point, God's call is, what will you do next? What will be that next step? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I just don't see any way to turn loose of that from a gospel perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Jones, I, I appreciate your relational approach um, to this conversation and how we how we engage them relationally. Um, I have a question on some of the more in, uh, or less interpersonal um, ways in which we make statements um, uh, as to our beliefs about GLTBQ <laughs> and um, the corporate world especially and how that's kind of blowing up right now. Chick-fil-A um, has become the standard for the traditional marriage. Um, but at the same time, Amazon's founder has just donated something like $1.4 million to getting gay marriage passed in Washington. And uh, Target is putting out these advertisements with gay men in it. And now Starbucks is, you know, on that side. And so, you know, I have in my wallet an Amazon uh, credit card and I have uh, a Starbucks gift card. What am I supposed to do as an individual, a consumer in America, as we attach ourselves so clearly to brands already, um, now we're supposed to be on this side or that side based on what we believe on an issue and, and how we're spending our money. And, and it's just a confusing world that we live in. I'm so thankful for these easy questions you all have been throwing all morning. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thanks. That's a great question. Um, and I, I, you know, that's one that I don't feel like I have a finished answer on. Um, you know, what's, what's, remarkable, what's remarkable to me is um, Starbucks, j just last year, the, the CEO of Starbucks was invited to the Willow Creek Leadership Forum. Willow Creek has this major mm -hmm. leadership training forum each year, and they invited him. Even though he's not a Christian, they invited him to, um, to come. And a, when, it, when this got out into the GLBT community, a, a petition was started to let's boycott Starbucks because they're supporting an anti-gay evangelical church, Willow Creek Church in South Barrington, Illinois. And amazingly, he, he folded, canceled his appearance, at the, just broke his contract at the Willow Creek uh, presentation. And there were only 300 signatories on this, but and yet, uh, and yet, they 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 he folded they folded the tent and withdrew from the conference. You're seeing more and more more and more corporations and institutions basically say this uh, this is the only way to be um, say, uh, to be viable in this business environment is to be fully and aggressively supportive of gay and lesbian rights. Um, we have we have we can ignore it. We can try. We can try to. You know, this is a power tactic, and we can respond with counter power tactics. If the church could organize itself, and you know, if, if you know, a third of you know, the gays and lesbians are two percent of the American population, though they have lots of friends and allies, and Christians are forty percent. Should we organize ourselves? But if we do so, aren't we aren't we following the, the patterns and, and directions of the world? Aren't we saying that we're going to get our way by power? And so there's a part of me that wants to say yes, because I'm very concerned about this. I'm very concerned about the ability of a, of a Christian individual in the future to even wear a cross at their, their place of work when that is a quote-unquote symbol of hate to some. I'm worried about a person being brought up on charges because they simply say God loves you as a, as a greeting or a blessing on a person as they meet them in their workplace. Um, 
we're experiencing at Wheaton College a, a, a dwindling of corporate de donations because many, many corporations in the past have had uh, matching programs where when people give to 501c3 nonprofit organizations, uh, they, the, a person can give $1,000 to Wheaton College and the corporation will match for $2,000. We're seeing those drying up because more and more corporations are saying you have to sign our statement of corporate responsibility, which includes a full affirmation of GLBT rights in order to qualify for this, uh, for this donation. So we're seeing these kinds of issues. This could head in directions that are very detrimental to the religious liberty of institutions like Dallas Theological Seminary, Wheaton College, uh, Catholic Charities, and, and on and on and on. This is a tough situation. But I don't know that Christians are called to play the game in the mold of the world. And so would it be more effective if a thousand, a hundred thousand Christians wrote Amazon and said, I just want you to know I have these moral, I have these moral views. I want to live a life of love and I, and I, and I want you to know that your donation is counter to, uh, to my moral convictions and I'm saddened and it makes me conflicted about supporting Amazon because part of my, my funds that I transfer to you are being used in this way. Uh, I wish you would remain neutral on issues of religious sensitivity and morality. This is not an issue of civil rights. It is an issue of moral sensitivities and moral disagreements. Maybe that kind of witness would have uh, more of an effect. I, I, and I say that not saying that's the way to go. I haven't resolved that in my own, in my own life. Um, you know, there's been numerous boycotts, against, proposed boycotts against Disney and against this and against that. You mentioned Target. Interestingly, Target just three years ago was slammed because its CEO, one of, one of its upper executives, it's not the CEO, I don't remember who it is, one of the upper executives is an evangelical Christian and gave out of his uh, personal earnings, gave a large gift to a major Christian organization. When it became known, Target was subjected to a threatened boycott by the GLBT for the private actions of one individual in their executive leadership. And so now they're giving in support of, uh, of uh, same-sex marriage. That's the kind of power that is being exercised right now. And uh, it's, it's, it's of grave concern, but I'm not, I don't have firm convictions of what the church's response needs to be on that issue. Still I guess thinking. it's ironic when Target gets targeted. Huh? It is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, thank you again, doctors, for coming out. Really appreciate uh, taking the time to discuss this issue. It's obviously a huge issue that has kind of been swept in the rug for way too many generations. But my question kind of tags along with Chaplain Bill's about um, um, uh, like sexual reorientation programs. And I know you've you've mentioned chastity a couple times, and like we don't want to idolize the uh, um, the nuclear family, but do we also want to say it's Christian ideal to have uh, heterosexual attractions versus just neutral, like celibacy. Say if I was celibate with, I mean, is, is that the ideal? Or, or how effective are basically these, these reorientation programs and how, how helpful are they? Thanks for a great question and a, and a huge question. Let, let me first start biblically. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there, then there follows a list of who he's categorizing the wicked. And on that list are there's two, two words that reference homosexual persons of various kinds. Um, and, uh, you know, they're variously regarded. They're sometimes, I think the NIV lumps them, the two terms together and just calls, calls it homosexual offenders. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Then the Apostle Paul says, such were some of you. Now, I think many Christians naively assume that that means, oh, those homosexual persons were converted into heterosexuals. But I don't think that that's necessary in the text itself. What Paul is speaking of is people who have been freed from their bondage to habitual sin. And what does it mean to be freed from bondage to sexual immorality for the Christian? It means you're free to pursue morality, that you're free to experience purity. And I think you, there, is, there is sexual purity for the single person and there's sexual purity for the married person. There are two variants of chastity. Chastity, in its classic rendering in the Christian tradition, is not something that's applied just to single people. There's chastity in marriage just as much as there's chastity in singleness. So from a, from a faith perspective, from a biblical perspective, I think the outcome that we hope for is chastity for people. Now, for some people, that takes the form of... of um, movement in, heter in heterosexuality. 
So I, when I approach the subject, I, I start off by thinking there isn't an ideal outcome. There's a family of ideal outcomes. And, uh, and where God leads a person is going, to, uh, is going to depend on God's unique calling on that person's life. Now, most of my work as a scientist and as a psychologist has been uh, reading and reviewing and sorting through the implications of the literature that others have written. But I have contributed a few things of my own. And this, area, this question happens to fall in one of those areas. If you, if you read the, the, my first things article that's on the reading list, you'll get a quick summary of that that work, but I'll, I'll tell you. We, we did, with Mark Yarhouse, we together did, the, to this day, the first and only study that actually attempted to follow people longitudinally over a six-year period as they were attempting to change their sexual orientation. We interfaced with the group Exodus and just followed this, these, these, a group of 98 individuals over six years. We lost some of them along the way. People, that's what happens in these longitudinal studies. And at the end, about 25% of the individuals claimed to have had a significant conversion to heterosexuality. About 30% of the people that were left claimed to have attained stable, chaste singleness and to find that a satisfying way of life. About 20% of the groups of the group had, had gone back into the gay community in some form or another, and the remainder were people who were uncertain about their outcome and were still trying to find what was going to be their permanent landing place for them. Um, I don't think that those percentages represent the average outcomes for Exodus because we don't know that our group was uh, representative. What we were af after for in this study was to find out, is change possible at all? Is there anybody who's still following the path that, that uh, Exodus says is a good path at the end of these six years? And there were. There were people who were following it. Now, one of the things I would tell you is that the people who said they converted to heterosexuality, their stories were not simple. The person who, who sort of had a light switch go off and was exclusively homosexual and became exclusively heterosexual in, the, in our sample did not exist. Now, they, actually, the person that I know best um, in this category is uh, not a person who was in our study, but is actually the first man that I ever met who claimed to have had a dramatic conversion from homosexuality to heterosexuality. And um, let me, for the sake of this conversation, call him Fred. When I met Fred, Fred had been married for 14 years and had five children and testified to having a loving and happy relationship with his wife. Fred had lived for 13 years exclusively in the gay community, fully identifying as gay from age 13 to age, what would that be, 26. He was saved by a dramatic gospel presentation, a street preacher. It was one of those things he thought, I'll listen to this idiot for five minutes. Gave his life to Christ, joined a church, and uh, he said you know, that he, he experienced no change of sexual orientation. Nothing was dramatic until one night when God said, you will marry this woman to him. He's a charismatically oriented guy. I wish God would speak to me this way. But, uh, <laughs> and so, so I meet him 14 years later after he's married this woman. And so my crucial question to him was, Fred, so you were homosexual fully? Yes, absolutely. I was fully immersed. I said, so you're now a completely normal heterosexual? He said, absolutely not. What do you mean you're not absolutely not? He said, he said, um, Look, let me tell you what my experience is. My experience is I can still experience homosexual temptation from time to time. He said, it's not very strong, it's not very constant for me, but I do experience it from time to time. If I'm under stress, if I haven't maintained my spiritual disciplines, um, I can still experience homosexual attraction, but praise be to God, it's not the dominant theme in my life. He said, in terms of heterosexual, I'm very different than the typical heterosexual. He said, God has given me sexual desire for one human being in the, in the world, my wife. He said, I'd look at other women, I, have, I experience nothing. He said, that's not typical heterosexuality for men. He said, I wouldn't want to be a typical heterosexual. God has given me a special gift. Um, so um, his experience was really weird and really unique. Um, and uh, that's the kind of surprising journey that God may have. Um, so, uh, you know, what is, God, what is God's call on a person's life? I think the call in their life is faithfulness. What does God want you to do right now? And there are some people who report that they pursue a life of chastity, and then they find themselves in a relationship that's characterized by love and attraction. Um, uh, and uh, other, other people stay single their whole lives, and so that's just their experience. The, the, there's an element of the question that I want to address from a New Testament perspective, and that is there's a difference between temptation and sin. 
And sometimes we can confuse those two. James 1 is very clear that, the, that there is a difference and that we ought to maintain an, uh, an idea about what that difference is. Temptation exists in all kinds of ways for all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, but it's when I embrace the temptation that temptation becomes sin and you've crossed a moral line. And so I think part of the conversation rotates theologically around that idea. It's a very important idea when we're thinking about this, regardless of whether we're talking about homosexual or heterosexual desires. Um, our time is up. Uh, I want to thank you for being the remnant of the first cultural engagement <laughs> chapel and being so faithful in your attendance. And hopefully uh, this has been uh, a useful time for you. Thank, thank you for your thank great you questions. Very, very it's an honor to be here. for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries Podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bows Podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.